Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. Take advantage of lightning fast score updates and live odds to ensure you never miss a beat when you've got skin in the game. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, and New Jersey. Must be 21 plus. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, contact 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, or 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey. Visit thescore.bet for more details. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. It is the year 2022. This is the 215th episode of this goddamn show, and I am still joined remotely. Uh, I don't know when that's going to change. By Joe Wolfon. Probably never. <laughs> I, come on. This isn't, this isn't going away. Yeah. Uh, At happy this point, New the Year, next man. stage is the NBA variant. Right. Happy New Year well, to Wolfon. Yeah. Uh, let's hope. Let's hope it's a happy new year. Uh, we're off to a rip roaring start here, but uh, it's good to see your face. Good to talk to you and get back together and talk some NBA, man. It's uh, it's been a little while. It has been a little while, but the NBA will look a little more familiar very soon in the new year because, well, maybe it won't look familiar if you consider it from the fact I was going to say, you know, Kyrie Irving and Clay Thompson returning. I mean, technically Kyrie Irving has actually missed more games than he's played since joining the Nets and Clay Thompson hasn't played in over a year and a half. So depending on when you started watching basketball, maybe it won't look that familiar, but both Kyrie Irving and Clay Thompson are expected yeah, to dude, return. Dude, Clay week. Thompson hasn't played in two and a half years. That's correct. Yes. Two and a half years. Wild yeah, so stuff. really, like it's going to be unf- it's going to be unfamiliar seeing, seeing yeah. those two guys back yeah. on the court because that has not been the norm. I was actually trying to think of this yesterday, like a guy missing that much time and coming back, like a star player missing that much time between games in the NBA, basically only happens when like a guy retires, retires? and then comes back. Yeah, no, for real. Like if you think about even a serious injury that keeps a guy out like a year and a half, two full seasons, going this long this many days between games as like a star player you basically are looking at mj's two retirements and or magic johnson's first retirement and then coming back briefly like it it's almost unprecedented clay is expected back sunday against the Cavs. Kyrie Irving is expected back Wednesday in Indiana, depending, I mean, we're recording this Wednesday morning, so depending on when you listen to this, Kyrie might have already made his triumphant or not so triumphant return. So let's talk about that, Wolfon, before we get into some other topics this week. We can start with Kyrie since his return is expected earlier. If you look at the schedule, because he can only play in road games, not in Toronto, he is only going to be available for 22 of Brooklyn's final 47 games. Again, that's dependent on whether rules change or become more laxed. But as it currently stands, Kyrie Irving would only be eligible to play 22 of 47 games. And if you go through the 22 games he's eligible to play, it is actually a really, really tough schedule to the point where like, I think we both actually picked the Nets to win the title. Even me looking at that, the 22 game sample that Kyrie can play in, still only came up with like 13 or 14 wins for Brooklyn. And for a team that good, I mean, like 13 and nine is, you know, tells you how tough that schedule could be. So 
you've got that. You've got, as we've discussed plenty of other times, like if the rules don't change and Brooklyn has home court advantage throughout the playoffs, if not at least the first couple of rounds, he wouldn't be eligible to play in a potential game seven or in half or more of the series. Like you start adding it all up. And how much do you think this really means to the Nets other than some extra intrigue? Uh, I mean, I think it could mean a whole heck of a lot. And the fact that those road games are so tough, as you mentioned, I mean, you'd certainly rather have Kyrie available for those tough games if you're Brooklyn. Uh, I mean, we when we talked about this, you know, a, a few weeks ago when it was initially announced that the Nets were going to allow Kyrie to rejoin the team, we were sort of you know, questioning or, or just speculating about what kind of physical condition he was going to be in. And that's the thing, like neither of us really has any idea. And he came back immediately went into health and safety protocols. I don't know how many practices he's gotten in with the team, like what kind of strength and conditioning work he's been doing. So like, it's kind of impossible for me to say how much he's really going to help. I do think just like, if he's just out there, I mean, this isn't what's going to happen, but if he was just out there, like standing in the corner, like spotting up above the break, that would still probably provide a pretty important jolt for that Brooklyn offense because they don't have a ton of spacing and their offense really does need a boost. Like even with KD and Harden mostly being healthy uh, and playing quite well, they're 13th in the league in offensive efficiency. And with both of those guys on the floor, they're like the exact same as they are uh, in any other alignment, you know, so whether it's neither of them on the floor or like one of them on the floor, um, their offensive rating doesn't actually change all that much. It's basically been league average with the two of them out there together, which is pretty shocking. And obviously they've had a ton of COVID absences uh, and that has contributed. I mean, you know, Blake Griffin, who I think they anticipated being an important part of their team this year has looked beyond washed uh, and specifically as a shooter, like he just hasn't been able to hit anything. Um, so that's contributed to it. And they're just like, they're kind of an old team that's looked a little bit creaky in recent games. And I feel like the the workload that KD was carrying so impressively for so long, it feels like that started to catch up to him a bit. Like he just hasn't been quite as good or as efficient these last few games as he was at the beginning of the season. Um, now that's corresponded with Harden sort of raising his level, but it, it still seems like, you know, those guys need some help. And and even just having Kyrie out there is like, you know, his handle isn't going anywhere, right? He's still going to be a, a capable supplemental ball handler creator for them and somebody who's going to be able to knock down catch and shoot threes. That in and of itself is going to be a big boon, even if he's not going to get back up to like peak Kyrie levels this season, or at least not until later in the season. So I do think it'll be a big help. Their Their offense clearly needs a shot in the arm because right now they're being buoyed by a, a surprisingly and probably unsustainably good defense that remains sixth in the NBA. Uh, and that has been aided in a big way by opponent shooting luck where I actually didn't check today, but the, the last time I checked, they were still number one uh, in opponent three point percentage, or like they had the lowest opponent three point percentage in the league. So there are some good things that they've done uh, defensively. And we've talked about that, but um, I just don't I don't think sustaining a top six defense for the rest of the season is realistic. Uh, and I think their offense needs to get better. So yeah, it's going to help. Um, I'm very curious to see what physical state Kyrie is in, how good he can be right off the jump. And I mean, 
just in general, like obviously the like Kyrie Harden and KD played like 200 minutes together last season in the regular season. And then I think 130 minutes in the playoffs. So like, you know, despite the fact that we have seen it before, we haven't really seen that much of it. It's still going to feel kind of novel to see the three of them playing together again. And they didn't really fully hit their stride. I don't think until the playoffs, like the first, uh, that first round series against Boston, they had like a 135 offensive rating yeah. when the three of those guys were on the floor together. And then immediately, like in the first game, like the first minute, I think of that Bucks series, Harden got injured. And then he wound up coming back later in the series. But once he did, Kyrie was out. It's just been like kind of a, a star crossed trio to this point. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how quickly they can sort of get their mojo back uh, and the synergy back that they had developed toward the end of last season. I'm not even trying to be a troll when I say it. I, I, I genuinely do wonder how many of the 22 games he's eligible for Kyrie will actually play. If you look at his track record, uh, durability-wise, health-wise, like all that, like that is also a question to be asked. Like I agree with everything you said and the, and the many reasons why this team actually does need Kyrie and it's like offensively, needs him to put them over the hump as a or else they're a mediocre-ish offense as crazy as that sounds with Kevin Durant and James Harden and to that point like okay I said you know with even with Kyrie in the lineup I can't see them going better than the maybe like 13 and 9 14 and 8 in those 22 games but without him it might be like 9 and 13 or 8 and 14 so he is obviously important however many games he can play but it's just funny because the more I think about it, it's like okay well you know, maybe he gets them or helps them get an extra three to five wins in those 22 games. And, you know, right now they're, I think, two games back of first and a game and a half up on fourth. Like the, the top four in the East are pretty condensed. So Kyrie helping them be, being the difference between eight or nine wins or, you know, 12, 13, 14 wins in those 22 road games is actually a big deal. Like it could be the difference between first place and fourth place. But then it's just funny because it's like, okay, well, that's the difference between them having home court for an extra round or you know what I mean? And then him maybe not being able to play in more games in the playoffs. Right. Do they, just, do they want home court? Is, right. right. Like so it's like, it's, exactly. Obviously they're going to try to win every game, but it is hilarious to me that we're sitting here talking about, you know, how many games he'll be available and how he'll be able to help them and how that'll impact the standings and their overall play. But then how it impacts the standings is it might actually end up with him being eligible for less games come playoff time. It's, obviously in many ways a shit show that won't really have a resolution if or until the rules in New York change. And if they don't by the spring, I don't really know how much of this will matter in the big picture. Yeah. The thing is like the, the Nets, even with the struggles that they've had offensively and the possible unsustainability of the defense, that's kind of buoyed them to this point, Durant and Harden is so overwhelming and I don't like Joe Harris. I don't know when he is due back, uh, but I think the expectation is that he will be back for the playoffs, right? And Patty Mills has been like so spectacular for them in his role. Like I, I think there is still enough there for them to contend with, like a only partially available and maybe not quite a hundred percent Kyrie. Just a quickly game. note. Joe Harris yeah. is expected back this month, actually. So, Oh, so there you go. That, I mean, that's great because they'll get some actual ramp-up time before the playoffs with him. It won't just be them kind of throwing him into the mix right beforehand. But I guess my point is, like, they're good enough that, that any incremental gain is super meaningful. Do you know what I mean? It's not like for a team that might have that been further away, 
yeah, possibly like Kyrie coming back and and playing in half of their games and maybe not being 100% back to to the superstar level player we know him to be wouldn't move the needle. But like, I don't think the needle needs to move all that much for Brooklyn for them to be like a serious title threat. And so I, I think you know, whatever positive contributions they can get from Kyrie uh, could, you know, prove to be super impactful as far as like the title race. And I think um, that's why it'll just be, I mean, really interesting to watch even just tonight. Uh, Not that we're going to take too much away from his first game back, but I'm going to be watching closely and just seeing like how close to being Kyrie is, is Kyrie going to be in his first game back? Because, uh, That's like, I'm not going to read too much into it if he doesn't look entirely like himself, but if he does look entirely like himself right from the jump, then that's when I'm going to be like, oh, okay. Like now this is trouble for the rest of the league. Right. Well, a team that will also obviously be in that title race, the team with the best record in the league right now, the team on pace for 66 wins without Clay Thompson. He's going to get Clay Thompson back probably by the end of the week. Now, it would be unfair, maybe unwise to try to project what the hell this guy's going to look like after two and a half years off. But all the reports, you know, all the rumblings are, are, are that he looks great and he's excited to get back. And if Clay Thompson is even close to the Clay Thompson we know and love, and you add him to this Warriors team. <laughs> Calling this a title race might even be overthinking. Like, they've been that good. I obviously love what the Suns and the Jazz have done and are capable of. We know what the Nets are capable of. Like, the Bucks are the defending champions. So I don't say that lightly, but I mean it when I say if Klay Thompson's anything close to the Klay Thompson we know, I, I don't even know how much of a title race this is. The Warriors are that good. Yeah, um, I think that's fair to say. Like, I think there's an argument to be made that they are the favorite even without him. Uh, with the way that they've played so far this season. I I do think their offense has looked a little bit... I don't know what the word is that I... Like, it's not that it's looked shaky because the process is always sound. Like, they cut and they move the ball and they play together. So it's not like... Even when it's not working, I'm not like, oh, their offense looks shaky. But it just... I think they are a little bit starved for scoring punch at times. The good news is, you know, maybe like coming back from that injury, you'd expect it to maybe impact Clay or those injuries, I should say. You'd expect it to maybe impact Clay more at the defensive end than at the offensive end, just because like shooting is one of those things that just tends to have staying power. Uh, and we even talked like before the season started about the idea of, of Clay Thompson shooting motion and how. He doesn't have that big dip on his shot. He's maybe not so lower body dependent. He has that super high and super quick release. Like it's uh, like a picture perfect shooting form that should be repeatable and shouldn't suffer too much from these lower body injuries. So you think that like probably offensively, he's not going to see too much of a downturn. Um, You know, maybe like because off ball movement is so important to what he does, you'll see a little bit of uh, his separation creation take a bit of a hit, but just in terms of his ability to shoot the ball, I think that's still going to be there. Maybe defensively, he won't be the same guy, but the Warriors don't really need him to be the same guy defensively. Like they're number one in defense by like a lot. 
even without him. And I think that, you know, the strides that Wiggins has taken as a guy who can, you know, he has the the foot speed and the footwork. Like he's really improved in that regard as far as just his balance. And that's allowed him, you know, if you need him to, to, to guard a shifty perimeter player, he can do that. He can kind of bang with bigger forwards as well because of his strength. Like he has elevated himself to the level that, you know, because you want Draymond to be in that roving helper role, like Wiggins can be the guy who's taking the toughest perimeter assignment as a one-on-one defender. And you feel pretty good about that. And you don't necessarily need Clay to come back and be that guy who's tackling those assignments every night. So I think, you know, if he, if he has taken a step back defensively, I think that's okay. Like they'll be able to hide him pretty well. And obviously he's very familiar with like the defensive system that they like to play. And his feel for the game and his understanding of their defensive principles will go a long way, even if physically he's not quite the same. Having Wiggins in the fold, particularly defensively, uh, for some of the reasons you mentioned, like you, it, it helps them be able to hide Clay a little more because Wiggins is capable of, or at least more capable than he has been in the past of taking on certain defensive assignments. And Clay Thompson hasn't played a minute with Andrew Wiggins in the fold. And the way Wiggins plays now or is playing now, like that's actually a really big boost uh, for Clay too. And so I just think this team is like so uniquely equipped and well-equipped to get Clay back, have him take as much time as he needs to get up to speed, not really need him, as you mentioned, to be what he was defensively. Obviously, if he is that, then great. But if he just eventually hits his stride offensively and further diversifies their offense, I just don't see how like anyone's beating this team. And I know it's early to say that we haven't. Clay hasn't played a second yet, but you watch the Warriors and just envision Clay with them and and the way things are falling into place with them. You know the season Pool has had, obviously the way Gary Payton the second has come on, like. Mm-hmm. This team is so good, man. Yeah. And I mean, it's also like... And they're about to add the 77th best player of all time. <laughs> the great thing about about reintroducing a player like Clay is there's not really a worry that he's going to disrupt your no. chemistry or anything like that, right? He's not the kind of player who needs to feel the ball a lot uh, to get in rhythm. Like, he's not going to step on anybody's toes. 60 like, points. How many dribbles was it? Remember that? that 11, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, and I think, you know, this probably means Poole is going to the bench, and that's a role in which I think he can really thrive, even though he's been great as a starter this year. I just think he's a really good off-ball player, don't get me wrong, and the Warriors kind of plug him into a lot of their Steph actions, um, but he's actually, like, not shot the three all that well this season, and defenses just don't treat him the same way that they treat Steph. So it doesn't always work when they plug him into those those sets like because you know despite his ability to move in these kind of shifty and unpredictable ways off of the ball defenses aren't always sweating it if he gets separation off a screen you know they're not sending two to the ball necessarily when he comes off a pin down uh and the screen defender can kind of hang back and feel okay about it so i actually think him playing with the ball in his hands where i feel like he's made the most strides this season is a good look for him and something where like him coming off the bench could be super effective because he's got a nasty first step. Like he just gets into the paint. He gets downhill. He's a really, really good finisher at the rim shooting like 58% on two pointers this season. So him kind of being uh, almost like, you know, you're sort of primary creator off of the bench is 
I, I think a really good spot to have him in, even if maybe he's a little bit overqualified for that sixth man role. I, I do feel like Clay coming back is going to fit better with the starters, you know, aside from obviously the pedigree that's going to make it would make it difficult for the Warriors to bring him back in a bench role. Uh, I think that that look is going to work really well for Poole. Yeah. And so, Steve Kerr did say that they're they're not going to get cute like Clay Thompson will start immediately upon his return. Right. Even just on a on a kind of emotional level. I feel like it's going to give me this. This is super cheesy, but like I, I feel like it's going to give me some chills just seeing him and Draymond and Steph all back on the court together for the first time since game six of the 2019 finals and with the Warriors in the position that they're in where they have the best record in the league and they're competing for the championship. It's not like, you know, him coming back like toward the tail end of last season um, wouldn't have had the same effect, you know, with like the Warriors fighting for a low playoff spot. Like this is, they're playing for everything right now. And I just, uh, I think it's going to be really thrilling to see those guys uh, on the floor together doing it again. Not to mention like Iguodala is still there too, right? And yeah. Kevon Looney is still there. Like the bones of of those incredible Warriors teams that are, are still in place. And um, it maybe will help give us a clearer picture or give us an answer of uh, of like that what if. if. If like KD hadn't signed there, like what would have become of the Warriors? Like would they still have become this dynastic team? Would they have won multiple championships? I feel like now, you know, we're going to get our answer. I mean, it might still be tough to answer because, like, how, how would we answer whether they would have beat those Cavs teams without KD based on what they do now? But they they can get a second. Well, yeah, title. you gotta you gotta still leave something to the imagination. Yeah, of course. But uh, and I do think, to your point, I I don't think it's cheesy at all. I think it'll invigorate the Warriors, but I think it's also like invigorating and honestly, like, somewhat rejuvenating for even for people watching. Like, I genuinely believe that. Uh, there will be some special stuff when it comes to the war- watching the Warriors again this year. I mean, there already has been. Two quick Warriors questions before we get to our break. Non-Clay related, neither of us prepared to answer these questions in today's episode. Question one, is Draymond Green the defensive player of the year for you so far? And question two, is Andrew Wiggins an all-star? Uh, yes and no. Agreed. Do, do we need to go in? No, no, no. I, I, I wanted, I wanted, uh, I wanted quick answers from you, and I got them, and I agree on both counts. I think. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I think Wiggins has been really good, like a, a distinctly positive impact player yes. this season. Which I, I don't believe him, he's been like, one of the twelve best players in the Western Conference. No, absolutely not. Um, but he's been great, and he's come a, a long way. I think on both sides of the ball. I mean, he's shooting forty three percent from three, and a huge part of that is just like he's taking catch and shoot threes now and not pull up threes. And that's something I said for the longest time. Like he needed to just cut out these ill-advised, like off the dribble jumpers that, you know, whether they were three pointers or long twos, just weren't serving him or his team very well. He's always been a pretty good shooter and a good attacker off of the catch. And he's just in a good situation where he can do that more often. Uh, And I think that's been a big part of his bump in efficiency. And then, yeah, defensively, I just think he's gotten like, way more disciplined, um, understanding how to use his feet and his hands. And I think it's been a really impressive season, but all-star no. And then, um, you know, Draymond to me, I think the only real competition for that award is like probably Gobert and Giannis. Uh, and both of them have really strong cases. I think like Gobert is propping up that jazz defense basically by himself right now. 
Uh, and Giannis has been, you know, he's basically been playing a ton of five and I think he's been doing an unbelievable job of that, but I think you still got to give it to Draymond as the unquestioned anchor of the unquestioned best defense in the NBA right now. Yeah. Agreed on all accounts. All right, let's take the break, come back and talk Knicks. Bing bong. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon, we're going to talk some New York Knicks. I wrote about them a couple days before Christmas, maybe, and not much has changed since. I mean, they've won some games, but in terms of the way they've played, the numbers for the most part, not much has changed. The Knicks were a franchise that desperately needed some sort of like positive development going into last year. And after, you know, mostly two decades wandering the basketball wilderness, they they got that positive development. They got that jolt of hope that every franchise so desperately needs when they're down in the dumps. And that came in the form of a surprising, shocking, really, run to the Eastern Conference's fourth seed. A season that, you know, wasn't necessarily out of this world, like prorated to 82 games. I think they would have won about 45-ish last year. But still, they finished fourth in uh, topsy-turvy East. They end up losing in the first round of the playoffs to the Hawks. But Knicks fans had to have come out of that year feeling very good about the direction their team was headed for the first time in a very long time. They've followed that up. With an 18 and 20 start, they're 11th. They're not even in a play-in spot after being fourth last year. Coming into the year, we both said that we thought it was very possible the Knicks could be better than last year while finishing way worse in the standings. We both had them, I think, outside the play-in, definitely outside the playoffs proper. But we also thought, or at least I thought, they would be better than this. Seating-wise, they're about where I thought they'd be, but performance-wise, aesthetics, like all of that, they're way worse than what I thought they would be. So then the question becomes, was last year's 41 and 31 campaign a fluke? Or is this season's 18 and 20 team still a good team that's merely underperforming? I think it's mostly the former. We can get into the numbers. Uh, you know, I'll cede the mic to you before I take it back and start rattling off some of those numbers if you want. But uh, No, you can I, rattle I, them off. Let's, yeah, do your thing. Well, all right. Uh, look, we talked about the unsustainability in their defense last season. Mm-hmm. They had, uh, I believe, the second or third ranked defense. They had, they were second in opponents' effective field goal percentage, but it was hard not to correlate that mostly to luck because if you looked at their defensive shot profile, they gave up a ton of shots at the rim and not just a ton of threes, but a ton of open threes. And yet somehow allowed the second lowest opponents' effective field goal percentage. Their shot profile defensively hasn't changed this year. They're still allowing a ton of shots at the rim. I believe they're, uh, they allow the third or fourth most of what NBA's tracking data considers wide open threes. They allow the third least amount of shots from the mid-range and long mid-range. And the ironic thing is that they are still getting pretty lucky. Like they still have the eighth best effective field goal percentage. I wouldn't chalk all of that up to luck because a big part of that is like their ability to suppress 
right uh, opponent shooting percentage at the rim which is a carryover from last year and i don't think is a fluke like they've been number two in that stat behind cleveland pretty much all season right and you and can you can give up a lot of shots at the rim and still be a good defense um you can fun- like look like a team the Cavs. like the Cavs, the Cavs allow a Utah. ton of shots at the rim and they're one of the best defenses in the league like it's right. it's deliberate in their case and in right. nick's case i guess you could argue the same but i still think that all being equal like if you look at opponents shooting even from three they're still getting, I think, fairly lucky based on the shots they're giving up. Just not as lucky as last year. And I do think, at least eyeball test-wise, if you watched them last year, you could talk yourself into, or at least I did, while they were getting lucky with some of those, with the three-point shooting, at least some of that could be chalked up to effort. And the effort they were making like elsewhere on the court, I, I think as the luck has started to run out, so too has that effort waned. No one is more guilty of that than Julius Randle. If you've watched the Knicks this season, like Julius Randle's effort has been downright embarrassing on the defensive end most nights. Back to what he was early in his career. And I think the biggest thing with this team, okay, like they essentially replaced uh, Reggie Bullock and Alfred Payton with Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier. And I think they upgraded their talent level and obviously their offensive talent level. But I think where this team miscalculated is in assuming that last season's results meant they could afford to sacrifice on the defensive end. Like, I don't think the bones of a good, a great defensive team were there despite what the numbers said. And I think they're paying for that this year with a less defensively capable roster trying to pull the same rabbit out of the hat they did last year. And it's not really working. And that's just on the defensive end. I'll, again, cede the mic to you before we get onto the offensive end. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely been times when it's been an effort thing with Randall, but I also think there are times when it's just, whether it's a scheme thing, because I know like they have pretty aggressive help principles, but also there's just times when I like I, I kind of scratch my head at some of the stuff that he and the Knicks do defensively. Like there was a, a possession in last night's game against the Pacers when, you know, they eked out this win over a like a decimated Pacers team. Um, it's like... Uh, I can't remember who was the ball handler, honestly, for Indiana because they like they have a bunch of guys who have been called up on ten days. But um, I think they like, started he, two guys on ten days. Yeah, and honestly, like Dwayne Washington, kind of nice. Yeah. <laughs> like I've enjoyed watching him play. It might have been him who was the ball handler, but they were running pick and roll, and the Knicks were playing in drop. And it's like Taj Gibson was right there. Like he had he had the drive like pretty well handled, but still, Randall is like pulling all the way over from the strong side corner to provide like supplemental help on that drive completely unnecessarily. And the guy that he's helping off of is Miles Turner, who's shot the three ball like really well this season. Uh, and then the kickout pass just goes to that strong corner and Randall closes out completely out of control. It's a flyby and like Turner just drives the close out and dunks the ball. And there's just like, I don't know, there's a lot of moments like that with over help where I just don't really get it. And again, I'm not entirely sure whether that's like a Randall thing or whether it's a scheme thing, but um, it just, uh, yeah, like some of the voodoo from last year has clearly worn off. But I will say like, yeah, the, the their ability to suppress efficiency around the rim is a sustainable thing that is a, a credit to their defense and one that should help at least raise the floor for that defense. Because as much as it's taken a big step back, they're still hovering around league average right now. I think they're 18th. They're, yeah. yeah, 18th. So they were 23rd um, as recently as two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I guess they've been helped out the last 
few games by playing some of these decimated opponents like yeah. Atlanta on Christmas Day, Indiana last night. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it hasn't been great, but there are some positive indicators there. And um, I think, you know, Mitchell Robinson has been a big part of, of their effective rim defense. Noel has missed a bunch of time, but when he's been healthy, he's obviously been a big part of that. And Gibson um, can still get it done. Like he's still a very solid interior defender. Uh, and it's kind of a, it, it, it's a team effort, right? Cause that team, like they're still flooding the strong side in true Thibodeau fashion and like showing multiple bodies in the painted area. So like when an opponent misses a shot at the rim, it's usually not just because one guy is there. It's because the Knicks are kind of a paint collapsing team. Um, but obviously like you mentioned that that comes with the downside of they give up a lot of threes and it's not like they've been unlucky with the way that opponents have shot the three so far. If anything, they've been a little bit on the luckier side. They're, they're just not as lucky as last year, but yeah. If you look at the shots they're giving up, jump shots anyway, they're still getting pretty lucky. They're still benefiting from some good fortune. Yeah. But I mean, look, I'm not, I think the defense is fine. Like I never thought it was as good as it was last year. And I, I actually don't think it's quite as bad as it's been this year. I don't think it's, you know, in terms of its personnel, a top 10 defense necessarily, but I think it can be better than 18th. The offense is what worries me more because like you mentioned, they built their whole offseason around the idea of adding more offensive juice. And I liked their offseason for the most part. Like I really liked the Kemba edition because I saw it as being a pretty low risk and potentially high reward flyer. And I still stand by that. Like it hasn't worked out, but it was a totally worthwhile bet. He's regressed since that hot start to it. Everyone was lauding Kemba and I get it. He's a good dude when he came back and played well, but uh, he's kind of back to the same guy that got himself benched. I still think he's been better than Fournier though. Yeah. Fournier has been God awful. The difference is Fournier is making what 18 mil a year for the next four years. Three. I think, I think the fourth is a team option or a partial guarantee, but yeah, like making, I think eight this year, maybe eight next year as well. But yeah, man, I think like I was lukewarm on the Fournier signing. I didn't love it, but I could at least understand it. You know, like, he did address a need. I, I just think like the process was a little bit misguided where it's like, okay, he addresses a need and maybe he's not like entirely worth the money we're giving him. And he's not like the the ideal player that we would plug into this hole that we have in our rotation and in our offense. But we're like so close to being like a contender because we had this great season where we finished as a four seed last year that even a marginal upgrade can pay big dividends. And I think that was the mistake where now they're locked into this contract for a guy who's been like patently ineffective this season. And now he's getting himself benched. Like he in that Pacers game last night scored zero points, uh, got roasted by Dwayne Washington and then found himself on the bench for pretty much the entirety of the second half in that game. They closed with quickly and Burks. Yeah, exactly. Which I think like those quickly and Burks have been better than Fournier for the most part. I think, I mean, you know, Quickly is still a flawed player, but certainly one with a with a higher ceiling than what I think you're getting from Fournier at this point. Yeah, I've been saying for a while. I mean, I've been saying all year that I wanted them to give Quickly more of a look. Like even when they first benched Kemba, and Thibodeau um, made Burks a starter. And like yeah, he's a veteran. He's playing better. He's shooting well. But if you think like big picture, long term, I thought Quickly 
should have got that shot. And even if you just think like we talked about too, the lack of a true initiator. Now, the one thing I will say with quickly, and you saw it in that game against Indiana last night, like the guy makes some of the most ridiculously boneheaded decisions I've ever seen. Like there, there was the one play everyone was memeing or, or throwing up on Twitter last night where the Knicks had a two on one break and it was, uh, I think it was topping and quickly. Mm-hmm. And quickly gets the ball I guess he couldn't really lay it up but he was like pretty close he could have attempted a layup maybe given it back but his decision was to like catch it and immediately backtrack like 15 feet to the three-point line and launch a contestant jump like it was legitimately one of the worst fast break decisions I've ever seen in my life nevertheless I do think quickly should be getting more of a shot than he's gotten thus far and the one interesting thing for me with quickly was the fact that Thibodeau didn't really give him the same shot with the start, the rest of the starting quartet that the other guards on this team have gotten between Kemba Burks, Derek Rose, who's obviously hurt now and quickly. And you look at having them play with Julius Randall, RJ Barrett, Mitchell Robinson, and Evan Fournier, who obviously is the other starter, despite the fact he no longer deserves it. When the starting quartet plays with Kemba, their net rating per 100 possessions nearly negative 16. And they've played roughly 300 minutes together. With Burks in for Kemba, the Knicks are still minus 6.4. And that lineup has played uh, 50-some minutes together. Derek Rose has gotten more than 40 minutes with Fournier, Barrett, Randall, and Robinson. And that lineup is a minus 14.9 for 100 possessions. Entering Christmas Day, I mean, it's up, I think, closer to like 9 or 10 minutes now, but entering Christmas Day, do you know how many minutes quickly had played with those four guys? Less than one. He had played, I think, like maybe the end of a half with them because he, he was listed as a lineup used, but as zero minutes. It's mind-boggling and again obviously decisions like the one he made on that fast break last night and his decisions general help explain that especially with a coach like Thibodeau but given what quickly means potentially to this team's future as opposed to Kemba, Alec Burks and Derrick Rose it is pretty baffling that the guy couldn't get a look at all what their starters and those guys all got plenty of chances despite the fact that the lineups were absolute tire fires yeah i mean and you've heard thibodeau talk about like why burks was the guy he inserted in the starting lineup and he, he wanted the defense to improve he wanted more size and strength defensively and that was sort of his primary area of focus so i can sort of see it from that perspective and and the thing i'll say about quickly like you know to, to your point i i think maybe his growth is just more important than whatever happens with the knicks yeah. this season that's obviously not the way that tibbs tends to look at things um no And, you know, I guess that's just for better or worse. Like you, maybe you're a fan who just wants to see the Knicks be as good as they can possibly be this season. In which case, I still think quickly has a case to play more. He's obviously very fast with the ball and he can make some pretty exciting plays. He's still a little bit out of control and like just doesn't have a whole lot of finishing craft. And that's been a problem that has plagued pretty much the entire Knicks guard core. Like none of those guys, apart from Barrett, uh, who had a really, really good driving game last night, um, despite, you know, he's he's had a pretty up and down season, but like he's the one guy who can get to and finish at the rim consistently among their perimeter players because the rest of them, it's like 
they can't finish at all, man. Like quickly can't finish. Fournier can't finish. Burks can't finish. Um, I think the Knicks are 24th in the league in shooting percentage at the rim. Uh, and they're just like a terrible two point shooting team in general. Like they're 24th at the rim, 27th from floater range and 29th from long mid range. So uh, inside the arc, nothing has really worked for them. And, and that definitely applies to quickly as well, because he just, uh, he, he needs to refine his inside the art craft, even though he's got like a floater in his bag, but like, as far as actually finishing, uh, among the trees, um, that, that craft isn't quite there, but I think it would behoove them to give him more opportunities, uh, to sort of figure that stuff out, uh, and kind of harness his speed and pair it with like a little bit more control and better decision-making. Yeah. And I think, you know, he, he needs to play, I think, to become a better decision maker. And I still think even the upside this year as a little bit more of an initiator is there. And as I've talked about before, like the Knicks desperately need a more, I guess, traditional initiating guard. Like to me, one of the, or the main um, negative that came out of Kemba playing as poorly as he did and being benched is that if Kemba's not playing well and therefore not playing at all, the Knicks don't have that kind of initiating guard that they need, right? And that ends up with, and I think you brought this up early in this season, that ends up with Julius Randle needing to be much more of an initiator on top of his other kind of responsibilities within this offense. And that is a role that he is just not equipped to handle. Like he cannot handle the burden that the shortcomings of this roster have placed on his shoulders. And Kemba not playing well and them not having that initiator because of it and, you know, going with a guy like Burks even over someone like Quickly, who, again, I'm not saying Quickly would answer all their initiation problems, like or creation problems. Like, he obviously has his flaws, but I think there is more initiating upside there. And I think this team desperately needs some. You know, you can look at the way Randall has kind of cratered this year. Now, look, I know that a lot of last year was just insane jump shooting. I mean, you were beating that drum a lot of last year i still think he deserves all the accolades he got last year like you can only judge you can only judge each season based on what happens that season yeah, you know what i still mean? hit so those like, jumpers exactly so the regardless of the fact that it was clearly unsustainable like i still think he was deserving of the all-star selection he got even of the all-nba selection he got because you can only go by what happened that year but if you look at big picture if you look at his shooting on short mid-ranges the first, whatever it was, six, seven years of his career, shot 39% from the short mid-range area. Last year, it jumps to 43. This year, it's back to 36. Clear where the blip is. If you look at his long two-pointers, he was a 30% shooter from that range for the first six years of his career. Last year, 41% from that range. This year, back down to 33. Again, where's the blip? And from three, the exact same thing. He was a 30% shooter. Then last year, he goes all the way up to 41. This year, he's back down to 33. Just across the board, his jump shooting took an enormous leap last year and has come back down. And it's still better than where it was, you know, for the majority of his career this year, but it's a lot lower than where it was last year. And he has looked a lot more overextended because when the jumper's not falling, when he's having to create for himself and for others in ways that like, you know, he's gotten better at, but he still shouldn't be. It It's really seemed to take a toll on him. Now that doesn't excuse the effort on the defensive end. Like, it, like I was not exaggerating when I said it's been embarrassing. There are plenty of clips this year where you can see him jogging back on defense, just looking like he doesn't care on that end. But 
some of it might be explained by the fact that he's way too overextended on the offensive end. There's a good stat too, where like, if you look at the first six, seven years of his career, 48% of his two pointers were assisted by teammates over the last two years. That number's at about 34%. Like he's having to create for himself way more again, because this team doesn't really have an initiator. He's having to create for others more than I think he's equipped to do. And it's like, I think Randall's turned himself into a really good player. Obviously not the player he actually looked like last year when the jumper was falling, but I think he's turned himself into a pretty good player that should not be the main scorer, hub, initiator, playmaker for a good offense. He can't be. Yeah, I mean, I just think maybe a little bit of a role shift would go a long way for him, but it's also... Like, is he willing to do that is a question that I have, because I'd love to see him play the other end of the pick and roll more often. But when he screens, he very rarely actually rolls to the rim. And like in that role, I think he could be super effective as a finisher, as a short roll playmaker, but he has to be willing to to do that. And right now he seems to be a whole lot more comfortable with the ball in his hands, jab stepping and taking, you know, contested pull up jumpers and Again, it's like how much of that is him, how much of it is the system and the players around him. Like, I think it's a little bit of both, but with the Knicks, it just, everything they do is so slow and deliberate. And I know that's like a, a kind of common characteristic of Thibodeau coach teams, but like, it's, I feel like it's a problem. There's too much ball holding with this offense. There's too many Randall jab steps and you'll see opponents like they'll play hedge and recover, right? And the Knicks just don't move fast enough to generate an advantage out of that before the defense resets or, you know, an opponent will switch and they won't look to capitalize. uh, The Knicks won't look to capitalize on the mismatch that they have underneath and they'll move too slowly and they'll give the defense a chance to scram itself out of that mismatch. And it's like, again, like you're just getting resets and you're not really creating any advantages out of that. And so many of those possessions are just ending with contested jump shots and so even the successful possessions, like most of the time, don't feel like the result of good offensive process. You know, like the difference between a good Randall game and a bad Randall game is just whether or not he's hitting those ill-advised contested step back jumpers out of late clock isolation. And that's where I think it's like, even with the personnel on hand, I do think they could be better about just like being more decisive, moving faster, putting defenses in rotation rather than just like you run a couple of initial actions and then it just bogs down into like a late clock guy. So that happens to their offense way too often, way too often. And I just wonder if like, did they get fooled into thinking that Randall is the type of shot maker who can bail them out of a lot of those possessions when in fact, he's not that guy. Um, well, given the fact that they gave him a contract that includes a 29.4 million dollar player option four years from now i think the answer to that question is yes they were fooled into believing julius randall was that guy but they did also try to surround him with more off the dribble playmakers who could maybe yep. shift him away from that you know dump dump on the ball and like hope that right. he can make something out of nothing like they they tried to shift him away from that role a little bit it seems it's just that like those signings haven't worked out at all. And now Rose is injured and that's just compounding the problem. Like their offense is just in mud all the time. I think RJ Barrett's regression has a lot to do with that too. Like I think Mm -hmm. the Knicks obviously, but Randall 
as well would be helped by the player RJ Barrett was expected to be even just this year. Forget like long-term and what he, his ceiling could be. Even just building off of his improvements last year. If RJ Barrett was the player the Knicks expected him to be this year, I think the job on Randall would be a lot easier. Yeah. And and it just hasn't happened. Like Barrett's had a really discouraging season offensively. I think his defensive effort I think has been really solid, but he's getting to the rim less frequently than ever. His assist rates are down. He's creating for himself less than he has in his career, despite that aforementioned dearth of playmaking around him. He's increasingly relying on his three-point shot to bail him and the team out. Nearly 40% of his field goal attempts now come from long range, but after converting more than 40% of those threes last season, he's down to 32.9% this year, which is basically what it was in his rookie year before he had that big uptick last year. It's a very uninspiring offensive output given his skill set, size, athleticism, and it's a bit of a chicken and an egg scenario because like on one hand, it would be great to see the Knicks hand over more of the keys to Barrett on the offensive end, but it would also be easier to do that if he diversified his offense a bit more, showed more consistency with his shooting, proved more capable as a playmaker. If he's not doing those things, how do you give him more of the keys and take some of that burden off Randall? Yeah, and I also think like the vast majority of that just comes down to his three-point shooting. Like I'm not saying that there haven't been other areas of stagnation or even regression, but it's really just the fact that he shot 40% on threes yeah. last year. He's, he's back like to 33%, 33% this year. Like his two-point percentage is basically the exact same. Um his complementary numbers are more or less the same. His assist rate is down a bit, but like, you know, apart from that, his turnover rate's about the same. Uh his per minute scoring is about the same. It's just like he's not shooting the ball as well anymore. And that's you know, kind of similar with Randall, like the team just sort of shot the ball above its head last year and is seeing some pullback now. And even then, like, like they weren't a good offensive team last year either. Like we should, we should clarify, like they're, I think they're 21st now on offense and they were 22nd last right. year. So that's why they, they did what they did, right. And in, in thinking they could sacrifice some defense to up the offensive talent. Right. And that's the problem is that the offense hasn't actually gotten any better really so right. they've seen the 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 pullback on defense the offense hasn't taken any kind of step forward and now they are where they are i will say like it's not like they've been totally devoid of positive progression like obi toppin i think is a a nice development story for them like he's he's looked really good um and just brings so much energy at both ends of the floor like he's got a really good motor i think um his defensive feel has improved like i think that's a reason for optimism and then I'm I'm curious about this, if this can sustain itself, because they have started to experiment a little bit with Randall at the five, which is not something that Tibbs has really been much willing to do over the last couple of years. But um, in 166 minutes with Randall at the five, they've got a 112 offensive rating and a plus seven net rating. So small sample size, but potentially encouraging there. And then you know, they're obviously sacrificing some of the rim protection that's buoying their defense in order to do that. But I think in in an effort to maybe goose the offense um, and even the defense, like in those minutes has been good. I don't know if it's sustainable, but I think that's something that's maybe worth exploring a little bit more uh, to just open things up and, and maybe get the offense out of mud a little bit. You know what I'd like to see, and I've been saying this all year, is a lineup of quickly Barrett, Toppin, Randall, Robinson. Huh. Toppin at the three? Or Toppin like Randall, at the three. At, Randall is the functional three, I guess. I know it's funky 
but I think this is a team that desperately needs to like tinker and try to find some combinations that work in order for that to work Toppin's got to shoot the three a whole lot better than he's shot it so far like there's just yeah, the, no like, spacing with that the lineup spacing otherwise. would be a massive issue um and i mean you can argue that defensively there'd be major question marks too but if you look at the contract they gave randall obviously what barrett means to their future and then quickly in top like you would hope that those guys can play together, I would think, given like the commitment or hope that they have in all of those guys for the next few years. And then Robinson, I think, is really great for their system. And as you mentioned earlier, even with them almost like funneling shots to the rim, they do it for a reason. And and Robinson and Noel are the big reasons. So like, yeah, there are questions to be asked of how it would work, no doubt. But I think you're, you're coming at this from a place where like you need to find some things that work and you need to experiment with some stuff because most of what you've tried so far isn't working and you need to find some solutions will it work big picture like will will it be great probably not could it be better than most of what they rolled out this year i think so Hmm. and is it maybe necessary to see what you have in a combination like that i think so yeah based on the way your future looks and the commitments you have to these guys and and how you need some of these guys to pop. Yeah, I mean, I would say like at this point, focusing more on development for the rest of the season would probably be a good idea for this team. I don't think that it's going to play out that way, but uh, that, yeah, that that would be what I would prefer to see because even if things, you know, quote unquote, turn around for them the rest of the season, it's like turn around to what end? Like to to basically win a play-in game and then get bounced in the first round in four or five games. Like, that's the best-case scenario. So, you know, maybe that's worth something to the Knicks brass, and I know it's worth something to Tom Thibodeau just, like, to try and, you know, just go out there and win every game. But uh, I think there's, you know, a a case to be made for more of a big picture and more of a long-term approach here that could could benefit the team more so than, you know, chasing a, a low playoff spot or even like they're, they're chasing a play in berth right now. Like that's yeah, what they're fighting to hold on to. So, yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't think I expected them to be as bad as they've been this season, but like you kind of said it at the beginning, this is sort of around the range that I expected them in. Like I, I predicted that they'd finish 10th in the East so that they would make the play in. But um, as you know, we talked about it a little bit on our, uh, revisited predictions episode last week, but like I predicted they would finish last in the Atlantic and that they'd miss the playoffs. And that's, that's where they are right now. So it's not a huge shock to me, but, um, and I guess, you know, it's also not a huge shock to me that, that they misread the situation. No. I, I thought that they were in a different place than they were actually in, but I, I also, I didn't necessarily think it was a bad idea for them to look at what they'd done last season, look at where, they had needs and try to address them in the off season and try to get better. Like I thought that was a worthwhile endeavor. It just hasn't worked out for them. And I think unfortunately that's also left them with some bad long-term money committed to some players that I don't see helping them in the long term. To me, that's the bigger issue more so than they taken a step back this season, which we both expected. I think it's that some of the guys that have been a, the biggest reasons why they've taken a step back are guys that they need to be way better long-term. And so the concern is like, not just that they've taken a step back this season, but that a lot of the future promise has been drained by what this season has looked like. But there is still more than half 
of the season to go. So who knows? It, it was around this point last year, actually, that the Knicks really hit their stride. I think they were 500 through 38 games last year. This year, they're two games under. So that's the funny thing is like, they're not really that far off, if at all, from where they were at this point last year. And they've got more time to do something about it this year because there's an extra 10 games a season. Flip side to that, obviously, the Eastern Conference is way better than it was last year. And the season in general, despite all the COVID absences, I think should be a little more stable. Anyway, unless you've got anything else to say about the Knicks or anything else going around the league, Wolf on, I think we can cap it there. We're at about an hour. Programming note, I will say this is a short week for us because Monday was a holiday and we've both got some other things to do with the last couple days of this week. So this will probably be the only episode of this week. We will be back to a week on Tuesday and Friday next week. Um, this was just kind of like the last one of our shows that was impacted by the holiday schedule. And of course, before we go, fan shout out. Fan shout out goes to Hiro Bento in Fukuoka, Japan. Well, fun. We stay international. Fukuoka, Japan. Hiro reached out a few weeks ago via Instagram, say he is a longtime dedicated listener of Pound the Rock. He's been listening for a few years now that we are his go-to NBA podcast, period. Loves the work we do. And he says, thanks for making me sound smart within my basketball circle. And thank you for ramping up to two episodes per week. Heard the international fan shout out on a recent episode and figured I'd give it a shot. Says, again, located in Fukuoka, it's the biggest city out in Western Japan, famous for its ramen and delicious seafood. My guess is I'm the only listener in this city. Maybe your analytics could figure that out for me. He did tell us also to hit, hit him up if we're ever in Fukuoka. So start looking at flight plans. Well, fun. So uh, yeah, according to our analytics, there is one listener in Fukuoka. So Hiro, you are our hero in Fukuoka, Japan. We, we very much appreciate that awesome message and appreciate that you have been supporting the show for as long as you have and supporting our work as we appreciate everyone who supports Pound the Rock. I will also say that, I mean, my memory is a little fuzzy right now. I can't remember. I think this is our first shout out to a fan based in Asia. And I think based on previous shout outs we've done, that leaves Australia as the only continent we have not hit via fan shout out or maybe i'm wrong and we actually have shouted someone out in australia i can't remember now but if i am correct if my memory serves me correctly and australia is the one continent we have not hit with a fan shout out i'm going to put it out there right now because we do see the analytics there are people listening in australia if you are listening to pound the rock from australia hit us up and we will complete the continental pound the rock tour I mean, we haven't shouted out anyone in Antarctica. I don't know if there's anyone on like a research base in Antarctica that uh, is listening to PTR. That'd be pretty cool. But Australia, hit us up so we can go six for six on habitable continents when it comes to Pound the Rock listeners. And regardless of whether you're in Australia or not, if you're a listener of Pound the Rock who has not gotten a shout out before, hit us up on Twitter at Joseph Cacharo, at Joey W, email joe.wolfon at the score.com, joseph.cacharo at the score.com instagram at joe underscore 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 cash let us know how long you've been a fan where you're listening from and we will get you a shout out like we did hero today on a future episode until one of those future episodes for joe wolf on i'm just Sharo. pound the rock 